Welcome to the Black Sheep Podcast, brought to you by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. We want to know what it really means to be a black sheep and work out how we can all get a bit better at going against the grain. We're going to be asking some of our favourite black sheep about the rules they've broken to get them where they are today. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. Today's guest is Emmy Brunner. Emmy is a psychotherapist and entrepreneur with more than 15 years experience in trauma and mental illness. Emmy is the founder and CEO of the Recover Clinic, the UK's leading eating disorder and trauma outpatient service and the first outpatient clinic in Europe that provides tailored treatment. Her approach focuses on the individual behind the illness, not just the physical symptoms. She's also the founder of Woman to Woman, a social enterprise that promotes an empowered community of women that support one another through talk, action and mentorship and provides help for women with all types of mental health issues. Hello, Emmy. Hi. Thanks for coming today. It's a pleasure. I guess, considering the premise of the podcast, Mm -hmm. the best way to start this off is to ask, do you think of yourself as a black sheep? Do you know what? I I guess I do a little bit. I think that I've always struggled to find where I sort of fit in amongst my contemporaries. And so at a certain point, I just stopped trying Mm. to to make sense of where I fit in in my industry and kind of just did my own thing. At what age do you think it dawned on you that you were a black sheep? Do you know what? I think initially I couldn't, I, I, I wasn't really sure what I was or how to make sense of how I saw things. I didn't necessarily have the confidence to back myself when I was sort of in my mid 20s about how I saw how people were being treated with mental health problems. I just intuitively felt it wasn't right. Um, and is that due to your own experience? I think in part it was, but I think part was just a witness. I worked in a private residential rehabilitation setting. Um, And it was just clear to me that it didn't work. People didn't get better. And the relapse rates were something like 95%, even when they've completed treatment. Um, And no one really questioned why we continued to do the same thing we'd always done if it didn't work. Um, And to me, what people needed was quite obvious and it just wasn't happening. I wonder if that makes us kind of go straight into mm-hmm. our first rule. So we've asked you uh, to tell us your rule book that you have metaphorically ripped up over the years. Mm-hmm. So can you kick us off with your first rule that you've broken? I think the first rule that I've broken is that you treat the symptoms. And what do you mean by that? Um, I guess so much of treatment is focused on symptom minimization. So trying to get somebody to to feel better, to try and lessen their destructive behaviours, rather than treating the individual. So looking at what the core issues are that they're struggling with and to resolve those. Because my experience has been that when somebody starts to feel better, they experience symptom reduction rather than trying to kind of focus our attention on stopping them from drinking so much or eating too little or sleeping too long like actually focusing on getting them to heal at their core all of those things got better anyway 
And that seems like a lifetime's task mm-hmm. to be able to heal from your core. Mm-hmm. What does that even mean? And how do you even start to break into it? I think it's it's so different depending on who the person is. Um, obviously, in their experiences, some of us have had much more difficult journeys than others. Um, I think part of it is getting to know who you really are and I think so many people just end up feeling like they're just a bit fucked up Mm. and just a bit I don't know wrong in some way and actually what they are is damaged Mm. and sorry I'm smiling here because I'm like it's the story of my life I think it's true (laughs) for so many people that I've worked with that they they'll just um try and explain to me that actually the problem is them that somehow there's something inherently wrong with them and that that's the problem and that's the reason that they do these destructive things um but in my mind the reason that these destructive behaviors evolve is because these people are struggling to cope they're trying to find ways to manage their experience of living essentially and to manage and process their feelings they're not able to do that and so they seek out these other coping strategies to try and deal basically and i know this probably is too general because everyone is specific yeah but would you say there are any kind of key players in terms of what's making us feel rubbish about who we are at our core I think that culturally we're going through or have gone through a pretty dark time Um, and I think increasingly as a community of people we're becoming more isolated so historically people would go to church they would go to the pub Mm. and on a Friday night with Mm. a bunch of guys and chat through about everything that they'd gone throughout the week they go to brownies they'd go you know we had all these groups of people where we came together and talked and that isn't happening anymore and culturally we're becoming more and more isolated and so those kind of casual encounters that we didn't realize were so healing for us are becoming more and more sparse we're having less space to get support talk about how we feel And now we're only really seeking out those interventions when we're in a place of crisis. Mm -hmm. And by then, things have often deteriorated to such a point that we're we're probably not in a very good place. I mean, yeah, everything that I've read around eating disorders, both from my own personal experience and also in preparation Mm. to meet you today, Mm. proves exactly that. Uh, The charity Beat has said that in 2017, 17,000 people called their helpline in the Mm. year. And now in 2018 to 19, it's almost doubled at 30,000. Something Mm. is absolutely going wrong. Yeah. How do we change it? Yeah, I think partly the problem is this very symptoms-focused approach. So we're trying to just stop people being unwell. So eating disorder is a great example. If somebody is restricting their food, we try and make them eat. If somebody is purging their food we try and stop them purging rather than thinking why is this person doing that what is going on why are thousands millions of people doing that what's happening and there's a lack of curiosity I feel like on a much greater scale about what's happening to us as human beings why are we harming ourselves why is this kind of self-punitive culture not just evolving but it's thriving and we are seeking out constantly other examples of other people harming themselves to to almost comfort ourselves with and I think that's where we get drawn into this sort of daily mail culture of seeing other people Mm. in a really negative place to kind of get some validation but I think really we're getting connection with other people who aren't in a good space because we're not either yeah I mean every day on my phone every yeah. hour on my phone absolutely yeah, yeah so once you've realized you want to break the rule treat the symptom mm. 
What did you do next? What led you to set up the Recover Clinic? I think the the clinic really evolved from me having a private practice to that suddenly become very becoming very full from me hiring another person, another person, another person. And it grew really organically. I didn't go into this going, right, I'm going to set up a big eating disorders and trauma centre. I started to responding to the needs of the clients that I was seeing. And so initially we were talking about feelings on a general level and trying to find a way to help people to have a voice and then I realized that actually one of the common themes that I was dealing with was that these people were struggling with relationships mm. they couldn't build or maintain intimate relationships with anybody with themselves or anybody else and so I set up a sex and relationships group and that became full and then I realized people were really struggling with a life a sort of sense of purpose who they were, where they were going. And so I set up a life coaching group. And so all of the kind of facets of the clinic have been direct responses to what I felt people have needed. And I really listen to the clients mm. and really listen to what it is that they want and what it is that they need, rather than kind of coming at it backwards and going, what are you struggling with? Let me try and fix that or make that better. It was actually trying to have a relationship. And I think the relationship is very much at the core of, of the healing for anybody. And because it sounds like you're doing something quite, well, black sheep like, you're yeah. going against the norm, you're going yeah. against what would happen if I went to my doctor and said, I'm struggling with food and I don't know what to do, or the doctor yeah. spotted me out. Yeah. How does that work? How do they work in conjunction with each other or do they not? I don't know that they do, honestly. I think partly the current government is cutting mental health resources, so they they really aren't just the people to connect with there aren't people to see you so the waiting lists are monstrously long and even when you do get sat in front of somebody it is a how much do you weigh physically how much are you in trouble mm -hmm. so mental health is still so tied in with physical symptoms um, and then the severity of somebody's condition will be monitored basically a, a, a longer checklist um, that isn't necessarily reflective of where they are mm. I feel and so what that means is some really unwell people are just not getting the support and help that they need because they don't meet a BMI criteria um yeah I mean I remember yeah. going to the doctor I suffered as you know with mm. orthorexia mm. and my weight my weight was normal yeah therefore there's no way I could have sought NHS treatment yeah. because I didn't meet the criteria yeah and that can obviously lead to extreme illness yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And when you live in a headspace where you've got an extremely critical, punitive voice in your head that's telling you that you don't deserve help or that you're making a big fuss over nothing and actually there's nothing really wrong with you, you just need to pull yourself together and you go into a medical setting and somebody basically reflects that back to you mm. and says, you're actually okay, there's nothing really wrong with you then it kind of confirms everything that you're already fearing about yourself. And this part of you that intuitively, and it might be a tiny part of you, knows that you're not okay, doesn't get heard or seen. Mm. And so many of us, that's all we want is to be seen and heard. And there's no one listening. So how do you enable that 
within your own practice? How do you make sure that people feel like they are listened to? I mean, literally listening to what somebody says and not kind of plowing ahead with my own agenda. So not feeling like I've got all the answers a lot of the time, actually, or thinking that I've got it all sorted and I know the best way to do everything. It's actually being able to listen to the person and literally what is their name and who are they? And what do I know about this person? Rather than thinking that I've got this blanket approach that I can just apply to anybody that walks through the door it's not true part of that approach really really does depend on who that person is and what their specific needs set are and there's some general ideas that I have about trauma and I really believe that unprocessed trauma results in mental illness I strongly believe that and I think that if we treated trauma with an early intervention that a lot of mental health problems would be if not kind of cured but entirely avoided actually in a lot of people but what happens if people don't want to access those traumas well no one does you know a a lot of us don't want to talk about the the painful stuff um i think this is where the psychoeducation piece is so important because i think when we begin to understand that by avoiding things that have been really painful and difficult it doesn't allow us to move on from them it doesn't allow us to leave them behind those that pain gets internalized and it doesn't come out and it festers and when it festers it comes out sideways and it comes out as mental illness but ultimately we live in a society where we don't have the time space or the entire structure of living isn't we're not rewarded by exploring our trauma in fact we're punished Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we can't take time out we Mm -hmm. we're not even only slowly now are we allowed to pay lip service to saying oh Mm. actually I'm not as perfect as I might appear at work at home or Mm. whatever so it's wonderful that you're able to do it alone within your clinic but Mm. what happens when you then place that into the outside world because I think it's a mismatch. Well, p- potentially, I think people are seeking those things out. So they're seeking out things. They're just not quite sure what to look for. So partly, we maybe recognise that there's something missing within ourselves. Maybe we're not in a place of crisis. Maybe we're not in a massive traumatised state. Maybe we're functioning, and maybe we go to work every day. But maybe we're just a bit unhappy. Um, And it's about thinking about those people too. So not waiting for us to get into crisis. And it doesn't mean that these people need to take massive chunks out of their lives to unpack trauma and go through some sort of big transformative uh, phase in their life. It can be a little by little. So those people are potentially seeking out retreats. They're looking at podcasts. They're watching things on Netflix Mm. that they find inspiring. They're searching for something. They're searching for answers and they're searching for guidance. I think what we need to do is just make it a little bit easier for those people to be signposted towards actually what's going to be helpful for them Um, because I don't think it means necessarily some big dramatic thing that we have to suddenly intervene with everybody it just means people acknowledging Mm. that maybe they've had a bit of a difficult experience and it's had an impact on them and sometimes just giving yourself permission and space to go actually that was really difficult Mm. doesn't necessarily mean you have to delve into it and go through all the gritty details of an event it can just mean acknowledging that something was hard for you can be really healing and rewarding and maybe one of the best ways to do that is to feel like there is an open forum to share mm-hmm. and it feels balanced I wonder if that leads us on to your second rule so the second rule is keep it professional does that mean you are totally 100% unprofessional <laughs> and what does that mean um it means that when you train to be a therapist you are told to withhold 
anything about yourself essentially and that is something that I have absolutely not done over the years it just felt like the most incongruent thing to me um and there have been so many times when I've been in the same room as somebody who's going through a crisis or a difficult time and they feel that there is not a single person on earth that understands what they're dealing with or how they feel and I do Mm. and I do understand and partly I understand because of my clinical experience but partly I understand because I know how that feels personally I've been there and I've had those experiences and I've experienced trauma and I've healed from trauma and I've had eating disorders and I've recovered so when someone sits there saying that nobody understands they can't possibly understand how they feel then I feel it's so important to just sit in that space with them and not try and pull them out of it to just sit there and be like actually I do I do understand and this was my experience um my rule my own rule with it is that I never share anything unless it's for the benefit of the client Mm -hmm. so those disclosures aren't about me and what I might need I I get those needs met in a personal space um it's about what the client needs from me in that moment um and so I do my best in in that forum to to apply to that was there a specific moment where you thought oh god I'm going to break the rule here I'm going to share like do you remember that first moment where you opened yourself up to your client yeah I I I can remember and it was a a long time ago and I was really fortunate to be working with a a much older female therapist and afterwards I went to her and and told her what I'd done and what had you done uh I'd basically shared that I'd had a significant trauma um because the client that I was working with was really struggling to find the words to tell me about this trauma that had happened and I thought what makes it easier to talk about what we've been through is to talk about it with someone who's been through the same thing Mm -hmm. um and this is the process I was sort of going through internally in the moment and then I decided to share that with the with the client um and afterwards I felt a bit shell-shocked because I'd literally gone against all my training everything Mm -hmm. that I'd been told to do um but luckily I kind of I backed myself and I had a bit of support from somebody with a lot of experience to say that I'd, what I'd done actually was an act of kindness rather than something sort of unprofessional and it gave me a bit of confidence then to run with it I guess. And did the therapist who was kind of above you did she know that this was going to become a new part of your practice toolkit or not? I, I, I don't know I guess you'd have to ask her about that but I think there was something about what I was doing at the time clinically with how I was working and the way that I'd started to build the clinic that was already challenging a lot of the kind of comfortable dynamics of my industry. Um, and so as uncomfortable as it felt, I think she was challenged by it also, and uh, but in a positive way and thought, actually, this this might be a good thing. I can understand that it would piss a lot of therapists off yeah I'm just picturing my own. If she yeah. suddenly turned around and started telling me about, I don't know, something I'd find that I'd be quite shocked. Yeah. So have you had anyone come back to you and say, I wasn't expecting that or I didn't find that helpful or uh, one of your peers Mm. kind of call you out on it? Um, No, I think, no, I haven't had that. I've had definitely had challenging like exchanges with clients. You know, I work with uh, women now in a very intense setting and they're very unwell. And so the relationship can feel fiery at points Mm. and 
we talk have very open exchanges so I'm very much known within my field for being quite frank Mm -hmm. and being quite direct Um, and I think that can be really challenging for people but ultimately I think there's enough evidence there as well to show that this works and that the way that I work works and so I think that that has helped essentially so even when somebody is feeling that the way that I'm working with them is challenging Mm. they know that this is what they need and this is ultimately what's going to help them get better and when you're treating people within your clinic obviously they are probably one of the most extremely vulnerable states that they might have ever been in in their entire life and then for you to offer a service to them which does go against the rules Mm. according to kind of society standards that's quite scary I imagine for Mm. you too you're taking Mm. a massive risk Mm. not only for your own professional life but Mm. for these people's mental well-being Mm. have you ever had a confidence crisis or imposter syndrome not imposter syndrome but definitely a confidence crisis where I just feel like this massive sense of responsibility I think for vulnerable people being in my care my husband tells this story about he he works in the music industry and he had a particularly difficult week and he'd come home on a Friday evening and he was sort of saying you know god it's really difficult I'm you know working with this band and we're trying to and it was all styling issues Mm. and it was like a pain for him and they were really difficult and it was sort of my turn to offload and I said yeah I'm I've had a really hard day as well and I'm trying to keep this woman out of inpatient treatment um but she might die and uh, if I make the wrong decision yeah and he tells this story as this kind of sobering moment for him about how dramatic those sort of everyday decisions are for me um and it was only when he was retelling it to a sort of third party that it struck me as actually that's that is how it is um and the reason I didn't want this woman to go into an inpatient situation was because she'd been to boarding school and it had been very traumatic yeah so I was trying to treat her as an outpatient because I thought it would I thought it would be really detrimental um but ultimately yeah if I'd got her got it wrong it would have been devastating potentially and I know that and so in those moments I have to really back myself um and feel confident that I'm doing the right thing but it's scary because you know these aren't products this isn't money these are people Mm. and yeah and how do you soothe that unease within yourself being a black sheep within the industry yeah mental health yeah I think I um I it, literally just that I back myself and I know what the alternative is the alternative is for people like that is devastating um what do you mean by that the alternative being to so become part of the revolving door of inpatient um treatment being discharged de- declining going back in being refed, being discharged, declining. It's so devastating to a person um, and exacerbates everything that they're struggling with. Um, And they just feel like complete failures. And so then trying to get somebody like that to believe that things could be different or that things could change for them is, is such a tall task. People that we get who've never had any treatment who come straight to us it's it's brilliant because right. they don't they don't have any other experience of um, mental health care that hasn't worked for them, so they come feeling a lot more hopeful for mm. change. Um, but people who've been through you know numerous therapists or numerous treatments before come in feeling like we're the last resort potentially. 
you have people ever that come in that have tried the system or been yeah. pushed into yeah eating disorder treatment from the NHS yeah and it's failed for them or it hasn't helped them progress however they're still scared to commit to you because you're doing something that's so against the grain a hundred percent how does that work um well I think god I'm thinking of so many sort of individual women at the moment Mm. talking to you about this and their experiences um we had somebody uh who graduated from clinic last year when somebody completes treatment and they they get better we we have a graduation for them like a like a party a celebration and when she graduated she shared um about why she stuck it out with us despite how terrifying it was because really what we're doing is we're trying to get people to be vulnerable Mm. and they have all this armor around them of an eating disorder or other behaviors being defensive but whatever it is and it's all just armor to try and protect them and so part of the treatment is taking that off piece by piece and letting know somebody know that it's safe to show up and be themselves and that we're not going to hurt them um and for her it was a life or death situation it was I need to do this because if I don't I'm going to kill myself um which sounds you know just so bleak Mm. but that's what got her through it I think and just trusting that there would be something on the other side if she just carried on putting one foot in front of the other how do you build that trust piece by piece piece by piece I think partly doing above and beyond that no one no one pays you you can't be paid to care in this way or you can't be trained to have like that heart and passion for somebody and when somebody sees it and feel it it's transformative for them so when somebody knows that you're connecting to them in a way that nobody else ever has or you've done something that no one else bothered to do it makes a difference to people and they begin to feel hopeful somebody a client sent me a really oh just painful email the other week and I sent her some songs to listen to that I thought would help her Mm. and I you know I'm not thinking I'm so clever for doing that I'm trying to find a different way to connect with her and I'm trying to find a different way to to meet her needs Mm. than telling her she just needs to to come to clinic and she just needs to go to her groups and her one-to-one because I know that's what everybody will have always done and so it's just trying to think out the box a little bit and think about that person as a person and what do I know about her what might speak to her in a way that nothing else has and being creative about it I really encourage all the the clinicians that work with me to think creatively about how they're working with their clients because so many of us wouldn't have been within your clinic yeah how does it work I'm in my head I'm imagining this like bright house of creativity (laughs) what happens I kind of come to you it's the it's like the least corporate environment for a start. So I I've when we were looking for buildings for clinic, for example, I wasn't interested in Harley Street. I wasn't interested in anywhere in those areas. Um, we're in Soho. I love being in Soho. I like the environment to feel alive and young and to reflect life back to the clients because that's what we're trying to do is to to fill them with life and to try and help them to feel empowered so you would come in you would take your shoes off and you would put your slippers on would be the first thing you'd do when you'd walk through the door um and then you might go into a room and find some people sleeping on the sofa you might find somebody reading a book you might find somebody downstairs making a cup of tea um so although there's a structure to the clinic I very much wanted it to feel like a home or a safe place I described it to the clients I was doing a group a couple of weeks ago um, and I was trying to describe like my 
thought about how I wanted it to feel for them. And I said to them, like, tell me if this sounds cheesy. And then when I told them, they were like, no, we love it. Um, I want it to feel like a womb. So, like, you you have this, like, rebirthing experience. So you come to us damaged and wounded and we take you in and we keep you safe and we look at the gaps, the things that are missing, and we try and fill them up and we feed you and we take care of you. And then you leave mm. and you go back into the world ready to live your life. Um, and I feel like it's very much like a being a reborn sort of experience mm. where you get to arm yourself with the tools you need to live. So it's not about sort of you walk into this like beautiful sunny space. Mm. You in go, my head says so clouds yeah. instead of sofa. <laughs> you, go in, you go in, but you go in with a group of women, both clients and staff, and there is an unspoken contract that they will be there for you and you will be there for them. And I just think that's amazing. So there's an energy about the place that I think is a bit, as you described, and a bit special. Mm. Um, but that being special is also about being able to sit in the darkness with people mm. rather than trying to pull them out, which is what I think so much of what mental health does. Well, it's a pressure for positivity. Yeah. And perhaps what you're offering is a chance to say you know what right now I can't feel that and that's okay yeah, and I'm yeah. gonna sit in that with people yeah. I feel safe with yeah yeah exactly and I think it's in those moments that the light comes in you mm. know and I think rather than trying to drag people out of those places I don't I don't think it's helpful and I think it more than that I think it can be traumatizing for people a lot of the descriptions that we've heard of people who've gone through different experiences experiences of mental health treatment is that the treatment itself has been so traumatizing yeah you know trying to get people to talk about big traumas that they're just not ready to process forcing people to eat mm. when they can't eat mm. you know it's got to be gentle and nurturing so as much as I talk about being direct and blunt and things I'm still all heart you know and still it's all about love and compassion and nurture and guess what it's basic stuff and it gets people better it's not rocket science. You be kind to people and people start to feel better. And people have forgotten that somewhere. Mm. You know. Well, society teaches us to forget yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And then to aspire mm. to unachievable mm. things constantly. Um, what makes me slightly sad mm -hmm. is that what you offer sounds incredibly, well, brilliant and almost idealistic. Mm. And you've spoken very openly about your distrust or dis like mm. towards the treatment that's offered within the NHS but mm. unfortunately the majority of the population mm. can't do anything else mm. it's expensive yeah so how how do you manage that within yourself and yeah and, you know yeah within myself I think I have the same feelings as you do I feel really sad about it I think um, I set up woman to woman. I tried to set up something where we could raise money to get people the treatment that they needed. And that's not necessarily with, with my clinic. That could be with anybody. Setting somebody up with a decent therapist and uh, or just giving somebody some advice and letting them know where to start. I have an online book club where I review self-help books. So I'm just trying to do whatever we can really to get that help to the people that need it. I spend... Uh, some some hours every week prepping YouTube videos to try and mm. get self-help stuff out there for you people. You laugh about it, but actually that's exactly what we need right do, now. Do you know what? I'm laughing about it because people. I think about the, just sort of my day-to-day -day life and I, I'm, I'm laughing because I literally don't know actually how I managed to put it yeah. all in. Um, 
And I've just started doing something on Instagram TV called the Sunshine Sessions where I'm trying to shed light on other people who are adding a bit of sunshine onto Mm. the world of murky mental health Mm. and trying to share people's stories because, yeah, if you can't come to our clinic or you can't work with a a therapist privately, what do you do? And you self-heal. I never had that. I never had a me. I never had a clinic to go to to heal myself. I did it through books and seeking out like-minded individuals who I learned a huge amount from. And I'm not saying that's possible for everybody, um, but that is how I got better. And what about therapy? Mm-hmm. I've always said if I was prime minister, mm-hmm. I mean, this shows I have no understanding of finance or the economy, but um, I'd say everyone should be uh, allowed to have at least one therapy session a month. Do you yeah. think that we should try and seek therapy even if we're not yet at crisis point? That's a good question. I think that um, I don't necessarily know that it's necessary. I think what I would love to see would be... Um, a more of a mindful approach to how we connect people because actually therapy can be wonderful and it can give you great insight into your own experience but actually if I was able to implement a monthly intervention then I would put Mm. like 10 people in a room together and get them to talk yeah I think that would be just so immensely healing when we talk about elderly people for example on the NHS and um, how difficult it is for doctor surgeries to manage them and no one talks about the fact that those people are lonely and that they just need somewhere to go and someone to talk to. And actually, you provide a group for those people to come every month to talk about their ailments. And guess what? They won't, you know, uh, seek out half an hour with the GP every other week. Mm. Um, and those acts of community coming together, I think, are much more important. Yeah, you're reminding me of the book. Have you read Lost Connections? Mm mm. That's one to go on the book club, Johan Murray, because he speaks a lot about how we approach mental health and how ultimately it's down to the fact that we are just totally disconnected. Yeah, yeah. And the different ways that we can heal that. Absolutely. And I think then those interventions that the NHS are doing, like with the CBT and helping people to identify negative thought patterns are super helpful. Mm. But if those core things aren't dealt with, Mm. then you can give all that help in the world and it's not going to shift anything. I'm just wondering if this links to your final rule it might not but in my head I'm making a link dress like a therapist (laughs) I'm laughing because in my head my therapist still wears like a Victorian cloak every week I swear I always tell my friends in my head she's wearing like a bonnet and a long skirt (laughs) she's not but it's just how I imagine it um tell me why why you've broken that that rule I just felt like the most incongruent disingenuous way to present myself I was told really early on in my career to wear dark muted colors to wear my hair up to wear glasses to not wear perfume to just present myself in the most opaque way possible and I was working with women who were trying to find a voice and to be themselves and to be brave and if I wasn't modelling that, it made no sense to me. If I'm not somebody who can inspire that, even in some small way, then how am I? How am I going to help these people? Mm. I literally, one of my, um, I've, I had really, really long hair, and I've just cut it all off. Mm. That's lovely. Bad one, way. thank you. <laughs> one of my clients asked me for five minutes last week because she wanted to know how it felt for me to cut all my hair off. Mm. 
and we had a conversation about it because she's frightened about doing it. And these small things um, aren't small things to people. They're big deals. Um, And so having a conversation about how I felt about that was in some way helpful to her. Why do you think the rule existed in the first place? Because it's not meant to be about us. It's meant to be about them. It's meant to be about the client and not you. And why was I told not to wear perfume? Because you don't want to trigger clients. You don't want to be um, provoking something in them that maybe they wouldn't necessarily get triggered by. But the truth is... People get triggered all the time anyway. Mm. And actually, mm. my experience, my my theory about that is if they're going to be triggered, I'd rather it be with me because then I can support them and help them work through something rather than them be down, you know, 10 minutes down the street and some woman walks past them with a perfume that on that makes them think of some horrific incident, you know? And have you had an example of that where, where a client has commented on what you're wearing in a negative all way? All the time. Yeah, all the time because, uh, we, you know, we're promoting a positive body image. We're promoting um, basically not getting yourself validated from the way you look. And then I turn up and I've got jewellery on and I've got makeup on and they're like, well, hang on a minute. You, you're wearing makeup, so you obviously care about how you look. And how do you justify that? Because this is not about not caring about how you look. It's about it not being everything. So I love decorating myself, mm. like, but that's part of my self-care and my self-love. It's not about how I get validated for who I am. Mm. And there's a difference, you know. I don't know whether this merges into rule two in terms of professional and personal, but I'm just wondering if I, as your client, was to go further than comment on what you're wearing, I might inquire about what you're eating. Mm-hmm just as someone that's been incredibly sensitive to food before, that yeah. would be something that I'd really want to know. I'd yeah. kind of want to pry on your diet. Yeah. yeah. Have you had that? And how do you respond to that? Not as much as you might think, actually. I think partly that's where the boundaries become clear and established mm. because then it really isn't about how helpful is that for somebody to know those things. So what I said to you earlier is I'll only share things if I think it's going to be helpful to mm. the clients. So if I didn't think that was going to be helpful to them, then um, I wouldn't share it. But you certainly wouldn't see me walking around Soho drinking a Diet Coke. Yeah. You know, I would be very mindful of um, presenting myself in a way that I wanted to support what I'm telling my clients. Yeah. Do you have any rules within the clinic? Is there a rule book on arrival or not at all? Yeah, there's a, yeah, there is actually. Um, Boundaries make people feel safe. And so they're really, really important. So you turn up on time for your sessions um, you let us know if you're not going to be in. If you want to cancel a session, you need to give us two weeks notice. Um, they're all things that are basically conducting yourself in a respectful way with other human beings, but also to help people feel safe and held mm. um, and accountable. You can't turn up drunk, um, things like that. Let's extend that rule, but uh-huh. we want to ask every guest one rule that they'd never break. Yes. What's your rule? My rule that I would never break is I would never have sex with a client. Mm. Yeah. Have you ever been tempted? <laughs> uh, n- I haven't ever been tempted, but I've been in a. I don't. I work with women now um, only, but early doors I worked with men too, and there were a couple of situations where I felt some sort of chemistry in the room and wondered what was going on from a clinical perspective, and that was challenging for me. But no, I've never been tempted. For me, the boundary between who I am professionally and who I am personally is very clear to me. Yeah, even in spite of what I'm been talking about it's very very clear to me um how much of myself I share in that 
that setting. Also, for me, the act of engaging romantically with a client would just be such a violation of trust um, because you are working with a vulnerable person and they are trusting you. And then that becomes about meeting your own needs and not theirs. And that's something I would just never do. Do you think there is um, a huge connection between sex and sexuality and eating disorders? I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's the, all of these things are sort of interlinked, I think. And I think when we get drawn into the detail of the symptoms, we lose the person. Mm-hmm. And actually how we are um, in relation to how we treat ourselves with food or how we are sexually or how we are with relationships or drugs and alcohol, whatever it is, they're all interlinked. So it's not an accident that people with sex addiction problems are attracted to people with anorexia. It's not an accident that people that are bulimic are more likely to be promiscuous sexually. They're all connected. Mm. Um, And I think when we get drawn into treating any one of the behaviours, so a lot of the clients will come to us saying, oh, well, I was told I couldn't have, you know, treatment for my eating disorder because my depression's very bad and that needs to come under control first or I can't have treatment for an eating disorder because I'm personality disordered Mm. and for me that's just madness because these are all just symptoms of one problem rather than five or six different issues we treat the person and everything else gets better Mm. so yeah I think they're all really linked you spoke initially about healing the core which I think is at the center of everything you do yeah yeah so in my mind of course I'm connecting sexuality confusion and gender confusion Mm, within mm, that mm. Stonewall released a study earlier in the year about how non-binary people and um, people that would identify as um, Mm. bisexual are the most likely to have eating disorders Mm, mm. and that's no surprise to me because unfortunately the world that we still live in yeah it makes me wonder why you only work with women I think um, I think yeah it's no surprise to me either because those people are much more likely to have experienced trauma as well and will have had traumatic experiences as a result of that um, the reason that I only work for, with, with women is a couple of different reasons initially I didn't I worked with men too but it was very difficult to get men to come to treatment mm. um, and I spent a lot of time and energy trying to engage men and literally had women banging the door down so at a certain point it was like okay I've got all these women they want my help I need to just focus on on doing that for a while but the other reason was that we created a safe place and within that safe place we had and have a huge amount of women who've experienced sexual violence at the hands of men and so then to bring men into the building just felt really counterintuitive Mm. um and was unnecessarily really triggering and difficult for people. Um, And also sometimes not necessarily fair on the men in a way as well, because we'd get into a a therapy group where you'd got maybe five or six women who'd been raped and you're putting one man in that group. I mean, I just wouldn't have done that because the dynamic then and the projection onto that individual who's there for their own reasons and wants to be healing something within themselves just wouldn't have been helpful um so I decided to make us a female only space and then I guess alongside that is what made you build women to women yeah absolutely yeah and more women are seeking help for mental health problems and that's not to say that men don't don't deserve help or um and more men are coming forward to seek out help which is amazing but again I've got tens of thousands of women um and each day we have so many inquiries and they're all from women Mm. looking for help you're such an incredibly empowered and empowering black sheep Mm -hmm. 
and it seems to come so easy to you. <laughs> I just wonder, just to finish off, whether there's anything you would offer in terms of how we can feel empowered to be black sheep in the way that you appear. God, I just think it's about being brave. I really do. I think it's not about not being scared. I'm scared all the time of lots of things. It's, But I can't get in my own way. I just, even when I want to, I can't seem to do it. Um, it's just about forcing yourself to do things even though you might be frightened because the alternative to me was um, boring, just so boring. And I couldn't bear the idea of just not doing what I needed to do or to seeking out the experiences that I needed to have needed to get to the end of this life feeling like I'd experienced it and more than being scared I feared being bored yeah a perfect place to end <laughs> thank you so much Emily that was such a pleasure and incredibly inspiring black sheep oh thank you thanks 